want to invite you to turn into your scriptures to John chapter 4. We are in our second week of preaching through Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4. Probably have three, maybe four weeks in that passage. But you may ask, why would we preach a Mother's Day sermon on the woman at the well? After all, we don't even know if she was a mother. On Mother's Day, we often talk about ladies like Hannah or Mary or the Proverbs 31 woman, and all those are models of godly women. A woman with a bad reputation seems like an odd choice for a Mother's Day text. But as we focus on gospel womanhood today, I want you to see a woman who moves from sinner and skeptic to worshiper and missionary. That's what happens in this text. What amazing grace that we celebrate today. I want to ask you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word and for our kids, children's church age, you may be dismissed with Miss Karen this morning as we stand. I'm going to read to you from John 4, verses 16 to 30, and then also verse 39. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers Worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Then verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Let's pray. Father, what extraordinary grace we see in this account what extraordinary grace we saw in the baptistry this morning and for every believer in this room we should see extraordinary grace in our lives and God I pray that you will produce within this congregation a bunch of of worshipers who worship in spirit and truth thank you that we have that we're grateful for that and I pray that you continue to increase it in our hearts, our purpose is worship. And God, we want to do that right and well. And for those who are not yet worshipers, Lord, 
I pray they will see the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ and turn to him in faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a lot can happen in a day's time. When this lady, John 4, woke up that morning, her life was filled with guilt and shame. By the end of the day, she had drunk deeply of the living waters of salvation that Jesus offered. And that spring of salvation in her overflowed to a town and many people in that town put their faith in Jesus. And the sole reason for the radical change in her life was this encounter with the Savior of the world. And in this narrative, Jesus going to Samaria, he is called Messiah. And by the Samaritan townspeople in verse 42, Savior of the world. Those are not small titles. Those are massive titles. Now think about this lady. In verses 7 through 15, as we saw last week, Jesus shared with her about living water. And he was talking about eternal life. He was talking about faith in him and the salvation that he brought. She's thinking on one level. The level she's thinking on is physical water. She's thinking about what comes out of that well, he's speaking on the level of eternal life. She thought, coming into this encounter, that her great need was water. And, and, and the most maybe Jesus could give was indoor plumbing for her. She's not thinking about salvation. So in verse 16 and following, what Jesus does is give her the gift that in that moment didn't feel like the gift. But the gift he gave was to expose the sin in her life. Go call your husband. Don't have one. You've had five, and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. Which evokes the response from her, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she keeps talking, and, and she shifts to a theological dispute between Jews and Samaritans. Now, this division is real and deep that she spoke about. Samaritans only ex accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, and they thought the place of worship is Gerizim. If you go back in Deuteronomy, this is the place where Israel shouted blessings from the mountain, so they put their temple there. But she knows that Jews believed the place of worship, the place for the temple, is Jerusalem. They had their temple there. So she basically says, well, here the, here's this 400-year-old dilemma. Solve this for me, you who are a prophet. In so doing, it looks to me like her motive is to get the focus off her sins that Jesus has just exposed and allow this theological debate to take place here. Now, Jesus goes along with this conversation. Now, in doing so, you, we may be tempted to think, well, she's in the driver's seat, the driver's seat. She's determining the direction of this conversation. She is not, okay? Jesus lets her bring about these concerns about proper location of temple and worship 
so he can drive the conversation not to location of worship but making sure the object of worship is right and that the way we worship is right all right so let here she is we think we should worship on Gerizim you say Jerusalem Jesus could have brought out second Chronicles 6 6 not part of the Pentateuch but some of the historical books and shown but I have jo uh, chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there he could have said case closed lady you're wrong you need to get to Jerusalem but Jesus didn't do that instead here's what he does folks see what he's doing he shows that in his coming the perfect God perfect man in his coming location doesn't matter anymore his very life his work renders those temples obsolete let me try to illustrate with something in the lines of like technology at dinner the other night we were talking with the kids and Amanda talked about the days when she had a pager you guys remember pagers yeah right um, you got a message or some kind of I never had a pager Amanda was super cool she had a pager but I think you got some kind of message that just brought up a phone number and you had to go and find kids there used to be these things called pay phones you go find a pay phone or a regular phone and you called that number well just just talking about it I mean our our kids were what what are these pages like didn't you know just there's nothing to them for them nobody says page me anymore and the reason is the reason they're outdated is because of cell phones we don't need pagers anymore well that's becoming outdated in the area of technology Jesus is talking about this massive area of worship and he's saying in my incarnation and death and resurrection temples don't matter anymore they have become obsolete you don't have to go to them but you have to come through me this is what Jesus is making clear gospel women gospel men gospel people recognize that we were created to worship if we boil down our singular ultimate purpose that purpose of 8 billion people on the planet right now is they're created to worship all of us are worshipers everybody on planet earth worships something now think of the the deluge of idols that exist I mean you can go back in Israel's history and look at idols Moses goes up on the mountain Aaron and the people are making a golden calf think about even in Israel's history the tragedy that they go to the despicable God of the Ammonites Molech who demanded child sacrifice you see in Daniel people bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's image that he created but we can't think that idolatry ended on the pages of the Old Testament we tend to think in terms of idols as wooden or metal or some type of constructions but idols are anything that we put in the ultimate place above God the agnostic Wall Street person who works 18 hours a day is chasing the dollar their, their idol is money 
the, the person on social media who takes and posts 800 selfies a day has, has the idol of self front and center. It's not if we will worship, folks. It is what will we worship. God created us to worship. Everybody's going to worship something. But until we get the proper object of worship right, we are going to be left discontent and never satisfied. So in two consecutive verses, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says we're to worship in spirit and truth. I think this is in many ways the heart of this text, worship in spirit and truth. And really the heart of Christian discipleship is that we worship in spirit and truth. Let's see these two verses again, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, so let's think, let's think about the hour is coming. If we can just leave those verses up for a few minutes. The hour is coming and is now here. Reason you don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem is Jesus has come. Now, right before this, he says salvation is from the Jews. And I think he's ultimately pointing to himself. We can see that slide from Genesis 49:10. All the way back in Genesis it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And in that verse, the him is Jesus. He is the one who is to come. That's who ultimately fulfills this leader in Judah, which is the Lion of Judah, Jesus. And so the hour is his crucifixion and resurrection. Now understand, when Jesus is talking to the woman in the well, he is not going to the cross yet. That is still in the future. The reason Jesus says the hour has come is because in his very incarnation, it has come. In other words, the purpose of his coming from heaven to earth is ultimately to get to the cross, die for our sins, and rise again. So he can say it now, even though that hasn't happened yet, it is certain to, because that's the purpose of his coming. And then Jesus is the one who will give the Spirit, which again happens after his resurrection, but because the Word has become flesh, that reality is going to happen. That's why temples are obsolete. The spirit of the living God lives within his people. So as a result, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then hear, hear this, what, what Jesus says. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Boy, we should be glad of that, right? I love that the Father is seeking people. Love that he sought me. What undeserved, matchless grace. And then within this, even in these verses, he tells us what God is like. So think about it. In the middle of the two verses, verses 23 and 24, he says something this woman needed to hear. He says something we need to hear. What God is like. And he says, God is spirit. God is spirit. He's not like us. In an, in an age that's so obsessed with self, we need to be reminded that we're not ultimate. We're not transcendent. 
God is spirit. The creator is not the creation. He is not one of many gods. He is infinite. He is unlimited. He is everywhere at once. God is not small. God is not a little pal to everyone. God is not a divine vending machine in the sky who is required to give us what we demand. God is spirit. God is sovereign. God is all wise. God is all good. God is all powerful. So Jesus is sharing something about the nature of God. And since that's true of him, those who worship him, I want you to see this in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him, worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Not oughta, not really should, not if it's convenient for you, go ahead. Must. This is a divine must. Now we get three of these divine musts in John's gospel. Two of them happen in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 7, in Nicodemus and us, you must be born again. And then later on in that chapter, as Jesus is showing, he fulfills that Old Testament story about the snake being lifted up on the pole. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So I don't want you to skip over that little word must. It's a big theological meaning. So in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So if that's must, we better figure out what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. And maybe it helps us to see what that doesn't look like. When we went on our mission trip to Arizona, one of the places that we visited there to, to try to learn about the culture, to try, to try to get inside the mindset of some of the people there, was St. Xavier's Temple. I guess it was a temple. Uh, mission, I guess you'd say better. Mission. And in that mission, there's this religious syncretism of Catholicism and Native American religion. And it's like those two have come together and amalgamated and, and it's just part of the culture there. And people, people were coming to it. People were coming. And this old mission, this old religious structure and thinking that could benefit them. They might light some candles. They might pray to one of the supposed saints. They might look to some of the statues, some of the artwork, and do all these religious gymnastics. And every bit of it's empty. Every bit of it's futile. Why? Because there's, there's no truth to it. Truth isn't there. The only way worship is authentic and right is if it's done in truth. And apart from that, it's not helpful. So in this account, in John 4, if you go back in this story, just like in, in our Sunday school lesson this morning, Pilate asks, what is truth? And here is truth in a person standing before Pilate. Here is truth in a person standing before this Samaritan woman. This is Jesus. He is, as we said even in the baptistry this morning, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. 
So he is truth. Jesus gives the spirit of truth to believers. In John chapter 14, verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells in you and will be in you. So that aspect of truth is crucial. But I don't think we, we break apart spirit and truth. I think they're a package deal. So we must worship in spirit and truth. We have to know the truth about Jesus. And then the way we worship is in spirit. Now I want to say here, probably in your Bibles and mine, the spirit there in, in, in verses 23 and 24 is lowercase s, not capital S. Now, we just saw Jesus gives the spirit of truth to all who belong to him. And it's only those people who can worship in spirit and truth. But I think it's right that it's lowercase s here. So what is... What is Jesus saying, worship in spirit, lowercase s? And I think what he's doing is showing this has to be genuine. This worship in truth has to be from the heart. In other words, it's not a rote going through the motions, saying things, doing things, and thinking that is doing what God requires. It's not a, I'm supposed to do this, Instead, it's Jesus Christ saved a wretch like me. I mean, we sang about God's grace. And Jesus becomes my everything. And out of that overflow of my heart is this authentic worship. And, and you, you could, some of our folks that went on that mission trip, like you could, you could see people at this, this mission. They were, they were doing some religious things. But I can tell you that, that climbing that hill and, and visiting that shrine-like tomb, whatever it was, that's not worship in spirit and truth like Jesus calls for here. Alongside that, though, we can also show up at Bible-preaching churches. We can show up at the right place, right time. We can sing right theology. We can say right things. But boy, if it hasn't penetrated into our heart and changed us so that we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, it's not the worship God calls for. When we love and we personally, as, as Heather talked about so beautifully in the baptistry this morning, move from just mere intellectual belief in these truth claims of Jesus to, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I had to put my faith in him. That's when true worship in spirit and truth takes place. And, and in that, we don't promote self. Like we, we get what John the Baptist said at John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. All right, so think, let's, let's go back, think about this woman at the well. As, as Jesus is sharing with her, I think her worldview is falling apart. Like this is a, a crisis time for her. She thinks, well, if I, if I just go to Gerasim, I'm fine. But this guy, who I just thought was some Jewish guy willing to talk to me, she's having to wrestle with, is, is this the Messiah? Who, who is this guy? 
God gave us the exact revelation in Scripture that He wanted us to have. But if you're like me, sometimes we wish we got some more details in some of it. I, I would love if God had given us an appendix to the Gospel of John and said, oh, by the way, here's how this lady's life looked from that day forward. I think some things Jesus just meant for us to learn in heaven. So I, I think we'll get to learn more about that there. Um, we want the rest of the story, right? Are, are, some of you are old enough like me to remember Paul Harvey, right? Remember his, the rest of the story. Like that, he, he would tell these things where he, where he documents these true stories that are often unknown to us. We just like to hear, we just like to sit down with a woman at the well and say, tell me about your life, how it went from sinful lifestyle to, to living for Jesus. Someday. Someday in heaven, hopefully we'll get to see that. But I think we see it even in John chapter 4. I think the way that John unfolds this story in his gospel, that we see her life has changed. Now, if you, there's a certain way of looking at this, that this is just a, a chance meeting that Jesus happened to run into this woman. Don't see it that way. This is the sovereign purpose of God for Jesus to come and interact with this woman so that she drinks the living water and her life is fundamentally changed from this day forward. I think she's starting to think Jesus is unique. And think about who she was. This is a woman whose identity is sin at this point. She comes to the well at noon. Instead of in the morning or late in the evening when it's cooler, she comes alone instead of with the other women in the town. Because she's a social outcast. She has a bad reputation. So her identity is her sin. By verse 42, I think her life has changed. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. We have learned for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now think about how her view of Jesus has changed throughout these verses. At first she's skeptical. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer that she implies by that question is, there's no chance you're greater than our father Jacob. By verse 25, verse 20 or so, she acknowledges, well, you're a prophet. Verse 25, I think she's leaning into Jesus might be the Messiah. And it's to her. Like she, she says, I know a Messiah comes, that he will... Tell us all things. And Jesus just says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, it's not to good religious leaders in Israel that he says this. It's not even to the common Jewish person that he says he's the Messiah. It's to this sinful Samaritan woman that he reveals he is the Savior or he's the Messiah. Now, Jewish people had some, had some things in their mind when they hear that term. They're thinking political, conquering, ruler. She doesn't have that same ideal. So he says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now listen, I don't think there are throwaway verses in the Bible. So I don't want you to overlook verse 28. That was verse 26. In verse 28, it begins with, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, and you get more there. But that verse begins with so. 
so begins it. And so that must be linked to something. But I don't think it's linked to verse 27. Verse 27 is just talking about the Jesus' disciples return. They're really surprised. Jesus is speaking to a woman. They're at least smart enough not to bring it up to him. But I don't think it's linked to that. I think you have to go back up to verse 26 with the so of verse 28. Where Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, if you read some different commentaries, scholars are going to debate the strength of what he meant by that. Some say it's just an ordinary way for Jesus to really answer what she is saying there. I think there's more to it. In the Greek, there is no he in that sentence. So it could be translated, Jesus saying, I who speak to you, I am. Now, in John's gospel, we get seven I am sayings that make Jesus equal with God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I think Jesus is revealing something very deep to this woman. I think he's claiming to be the Messiah. And then verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. Now think about that. Why did she come to this well? She came to get some water. Jesus talks to her about living water. All she's thinking about is physical water. So the reason that she comes to this well is water. But once she understands or begins to understand Jesus is different, she leaves her bucket. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize her leaving her bucket. I think we can get in trouble with that too. But I also don't want to dismiss it because I think John tells us that fact for a reason. So I think we can at least safely say that this woman's priority that day went from getting some water from this well to figuring out, is this man the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And maybe it's in this crisis moment that she starts to believe in Jesus. This week I received an email with the subject, subject line, the deliciously baffling joy of conversion. That's a, that's a great subject line. So I looked in the email and Colin Hansen, who is writer for the Gospel Coalition, interviewed Molly Worthen. Now you don't know that name probably, I didn't know that name. She's Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so I listened to pretty much all this interview, and it was just fascinating. She grew up in a secular home with almost no place for religion. She became a journalist, and she even wrote a book on evangelical Christianity. Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Seminary. He called that book one every serious mind evangelical should read, but he also said it was infuriating. And it was snarky toward evangelicals. So here's this history professor. She's not a believer. She's largely secular in her mindset. And she embarks on this journey. And, it, and, it, and her journey is really one of high church type Christianity. Where she got baptized. But she didn't really know what it meant. She was not a follower of Jesus Christ. She wasn't a believer in the gospel, 
but she had had some sort of high church religious experience that really didn't affect her life. Well, in a local publication, she pitched an article to them on the Summit Church in Raleigh that's pastored by J.D. Greer. That's one of our Southern Baptist churches. J.D. Greer is a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And she interviewed him, and when she did, she mentioned that she was an unbeliever. Well, that led to an ongoing email conversation and a deep investigation by this lady of Christianity. And she's reading, she's reading a lot of books, massive books. Point where she even says she felt like she was doing another master's degree. Well, she started attending services at the Summit Church. And in doing so, she'd always imagined if she ever really got into Christianity, she would just be a Catholic. But here's what she said. What stunned her about going to this church is that while she was in church, hear this, shocking, she thought about Jesus. Now before in her high church, it was more like looking at the stained glass windows and, and this sort of thing. But in this church that dives into the Word of God, the focus was on Jesus. And what it all came down to her, to for her, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, she knew it changed everything. So she's reading this, I know she read an 800 page book on the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what she said. I had to admit that I had gotten over that line of believing the resurrection was the best explanation for the historical evidence we have. And if that was true, I had to change my working hypothesis of the universe. So I went from praying basically for God to show himself to me to just seeing what it was like to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. She even referenced Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now think about that. Just as this woman at the well had to deal with Jesus' claim to be Messiah, so did Molly Worthen. And both realized that Jesus is who he said he was. And it was just last year that this lady became a believer. And you can hear the impact in her life a focus on Jesus. So here's two women, two millennia apart, two cultures apart, two languages apart, both realizing Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus became their great treasure. So what does that do in our lives? Well, she went to the town and told the people of that town, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, had Jesus told her all that she had ever done? He hadn't told her all that she had ever done. She exaggerates, but she does so for a reason. What she means is, he knew my sin. He told me my sin. And look who she's going to tell that to. She goes to the people of that town. She didn't like those people. They didn't like her. She had been trying to avoid them by going to the well at noon. 
But what she seems to believe is this. If this man really is the Messiah, and if he's offered me the living water of salvation, then what previously defined me, my sin, doesn't define me anymore. My identity can now be found not in I'm a sinner, but in the fact that Jesus forgave my sin and he is my savior. I said last week that her greatest need is to see Jesus. To see Jesus as her greatest need. And to do that, he had to show her the despair of sin. One of these old Puritans from the 17th century, Thomas Watson, he uttered a devotional masterpiece in a short sentence. He said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. This woman's sin, I believe, became bitter to her. And in that, Christ became sweet to her. Ultimately, sweet to her. I believe there is a line of despair in our culture. We talked last week about the Surgeon General's report about the epidemic of loneliness. We are a lonely culture. We are a despairing culture. The way to move from despair to hope is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, when we do, hope never disappears. So in this day where we celebrate women, we celebrate gospel womanhood, it's a hard day for many. It's a day when joy and sorrow exist Maybe in the same heart, often on the same pews. But even in the midst of grief for the follower of Jesus, they're never without hope. I mentioned that Colin Hansen interview with Molly Worth, and the name of his podcast is Gospel Bound. And the tagline, I love the tagline. Here's his tagline. When we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. When we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. And church, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your hope is not little. Your hope is abounding, overflowing, always there. Gospel people have great hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to dig again in this story of the woman at the well. Thank you, Father, for the divine, sovereign will of God for Jesus to interact with this woman at the well. Thank you for the profound change in her life, for the profound change in those townspeople, and Lord, that same profound change for every person who has put their faith in Jesus. And God, today I pray on a wonderful day where we celebrate Moms and gospel womanhood, I pray that we're also abounding in hope as we're bound to the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, would you stand with us?